Zivie Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivieowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode is sponsored by Poets and Writers, which is the absolutely essential go-to resource for creative writers. Founded in 1970, Poets and Writers is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Visit pw.org to get inspired, connect with others, and explore a treasure trove of trustworthy information about writing contests, literary agents, and more. I'm here today with Thatcher Wine, who's the co-author with Elizabeth Lane of For the Love of Books, Designing and Curating a Home Library. Thatcher is the founder of Juniper Books, a company that works with book lovers, homeowners, and designers to create custom libraries. A graduate of Dartmouth College with a degree in history and art history, Thatcher lives in Boulder, Colorado, although he's originally from New York. Welcome, Thatcher. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for having me here. This is perfect because you're probably a bigger, if not as big a book lover as me. So this is like such a pleasure to talk to somebody who like shares this passion for books. Your book, For the Love of Books. Let's talk about it. What's what's it about? So it's For Love of Books, Designing and Curating a Home Library. And it's all about books. So it's for book lovers, by a book lover. And it's all about, you know, both collecting books in your home for their content as well as their beauty and displaying them in a way that really reflects who you are. So tell me about founding... Juniper Books, which is the company that you founded 18 years ago mm-hmm. and you yeah. still run. You were f- in the midst of this e-revolution of Kindle and all this stuff, and people were predicting the end of books altogether, and here you were starting your own publishing imprint, essentially. Tell me about that whole experience. Yeah, and it wasn't—I never set out to start a book business. And even when I started selling books, I didn't consider it to be a business, really. I really considered it to be a hobby, that I enjoyed, had fun, you know, going to estate sales, library sales, antique auctions, things like that, coming home with a bunch of books, describing them, figuring out if they were first editions, if they were signed, if there was some provenance to, you know, who had owned them before, and putting them up on the internet <laughs> in the early days, roughly, you know, of books going online. And, you know, one thing led to another. A few years later, I was still buying books in larger and larger quantities. I'd hear about a bookstore going out of business, and I'd go buy their inventory. I figure where out, do you put all this? Is this um, like garage situation? Physically, yeah, yeah I know. physically. Because books take up space. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We're in your beautiful studio surrounded by books. And, you know, one thing I love about books is they really do exist in the real world. And you can't have unlimited quantities of them. So figuring out where to put them. And when you go buy 25,000 books from a bookstore in Litchfield, Connecticut, it's a challenge. I to bet. where they go. So I operated the business for a number of years out of my basement and then out of my garage and then out of a few storage units. And I'm in Boulder, Colorado. So, so I kind of had this, you know, route all around town where I had books stored and had bookshelves set up. And I, you know, was very kind of OCD about cataloging them and knowing exactly where everything was. But they were spread out for a long time. I think it wasn't until eight years into the business that I had an off-site warehouse. And then I closed all the storage units, got everything out of the basement because we were expecting our second child, and brought everything to one place. And that's now... Well, that was one Juniper Books headquarters, and then about five years later, we moved it. So eventually, you know, it became a real business with a real space. Eventually, you know, I had employees doing the cataloging, shipping. How many and books one thing's led to another. do you think you have now? These days, I think we have about 20,000 books in stock. And, and the business really transformed over the years. So it was really, it was about rare books and first editions back then. Very, you know, antiquarian, kind of the older the better. Then made a couple shifts, like in the 2000s, some people asked if I could curate a library for their house. 
and then light bulb went off, like, oh, maybe this could be my niche, curating collections for, for homeowners and hotel lobbies and things like that when they needed books. But eventually it shifted to more and more new books and fewer used books and old books. But we still do some of both. And talk to me about how you decided that book covers could be a canvas, because part of your book curation is not only filling libraries with the right things that appeal to those particular owners, but you also have this gift of recovering books and basically taking someone's interest and, you know, if they're interested in the mountains, having a hundred books and all together, it's like a puzzle piece that adds up to a picture of a mountain. I probably didn't explain that very well. But anyway, how did you come up with that whole thing in addition? Yeah, no, that was perfect. I mean, it's, it's really anything that you can imagine with books, we can do it and put that across the covers. And the epiphany, it was a, f- a few different epiphanies, really. So we got, like, in I think around 2008 or so, there's a designer, very well-known designer, Philippe Stark, who was ordering lots of books for different properties in Miami and the Caribbean and Dallas and places like that. And each one was a different kind of color wall that, you know, would go into a hotel lobby or the spa in Miami or the club room in Dallas. And they were all, you know, can we have a thousand black books and a thousand white books? And I thought, okay, this is cool. This is like a better use for those books than them going into landfill or just being pulped or thrown away. You know, but a light bulb kind of went off like, huh, I wonder if, you know, there's some homeowners that want something similar. They want the white books, but they want to be able to find their books. So I started experimenting with custom printed jackets and initially just printing the titles on them. Then it went from there to, huh, can I change the color? Can I make them all pink? Can I make them, you know, royal blue? And then from there, I thought, okay, well, you know, one book, one printed jacket with one title is interesting. But when you push a few books together, like, you all of a sudden have more than just an inch and a half times nine inches tall. Like, could we do something really fun with that? And so if you do three books or ten books or multiple shelves, and all of a sudden you've got four feet wide by four feet tall, and you can print an Eiffel Tower across the shelves or the Brooklyn Bridge or a picture of, you know, trees in the forest, like, you can really do so much more. And, and I thought of it as, like, this canvas that nobody else had really noticed before. I mean, obviously, bookshelves have existed, and book bindings have been around and sending your books to the bookbinder in London back in the day, you know, and, and getting your books to be uniform. But I thought, you know, we could unleash this whole creative potential of just putting any books together, especially the books that you want and the books that you've read or want to read, and making them really special and artistic so they can be both a piece of art at the same time, that they're totally functional. So cool. Thank you. It's going to sound a little kooky, but I once had a session with this medium, and she told me that in a prior life, I was actually a bookbinder in London. So <laughs> anyway, make of that I what you it. will. Yeah. But <laughs> It's like every, every book lover's dream comes yeah, true. Yeah, exactly. To be told She's that. probably just like, yeah. this girl <laughs> likes books. What can I make up? She would like. <laughs> That's amazing. So you have this great business. You figure out this thing with canvases. How do you then spread the word about the fact that you do this? Like, was it through designers? I'm just interested. Like, I know I got to you originally mm-hmm. without even meeting you, but through a designer for a previous home I owned to do some custom purple and gray and white books and everything. How did you, you had this, like, how do you go from having this brilliant idea to then, like, being the one who's doing Gwyneth Paltrow's bookshelves right. and everything? Yeah. So, I mean, kind of like the business in general, I didn't, set out with a master marketing plan either. Let things unfold very organically. And, you know, one thing that, you know, is a benefit of technology and and kind of being the only one that does something is that when people Google you, you know, custom library builder or something like that, they can find us because there aren't that many people that do it. 
So I tried to make, even though I recognized early on that not everybody needs what we do, <laughs> but that when they do think of it, when they're remodeling a house, building a new house, you know, building a hotel, looking for a special gift to give somebody, you know, I wanted to make ours, our site easy to find. So on the one hand, that's one way people find us through Google and other searches. And the other thing is that we've gotten a lot of great publicity over the years. So, and I think I'd attribute that to, I think, you know, what we do is fun and creative and sort of fresh take on something that people love, especially people who are in print media. They all want print to stick around. We want to help them. They want to help us. Printed books, newspapers, you know, and sort of analog media have a lot in common. So we, we got some really good press over the years. And then we also, you know, every time that we've worked with a customer, like the designers that we know in common, we treat them really well. And we consider everybody to be a customer for life. They might be coming to us for like a Harry Potter set now, but they might be back to remodel their house 10 years from now. And, you know, I treat everybody like, kind of like, you know, I learned to treat them in my parents' business growing up as a VIP, just with really good service and make sure that everything was perfect. And your parents own the restaurant, The Quilted Giraffe. So you worked in the restaurant to do this or what? Yeah, when we first moved to New York City. And Child I, labor here? <laughs> Should we exploit? We'll, we'll yeah. wrap them out, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we moved to New York City in 1979 from upstate New York. And my, my father used to be like a Wall Street attorney and small town attorney. He opened a restaurant on the side and maybe like me, never planned on having it be a full-time business. But he loved cooking and he found that he could do it really well. And even though he never went to you know, culinary school or anything, he became one of the most celebrated chefs in New York in the 80s. So we moved to New York in 79. We lived above the restaurant, and I'd call down and order dinner. That's so cool. <laughs> and then occasionally my mom would call upstairs and be like, it's raining out, you know, just do you or your sister want to come down and check coats for the night and make some money? And I'd, like, bring my homework to the coat room and, you know, check coats and read a book in the coat room. And it was a fun fun way to grow up. And then eventually I worked as a waiter and as a cook and, and experienced every job in the house. Yeah. And now do you cook? I do cook. Yeah, I love to cook. So definitely my, my sister and I, you know, learned from my dad and we love to cook. And, and I think a lot of the lessons I learned, like we were talking about before, you know, about customer service and creativity and not really being bound by any conventions or, you know, if, if something seems like a crazy idea, like you're probably onto something. People tell you that you're crazy and it's, you know, it's not traditional. It's not accepted. And I think I've applied some of those same lessons to what I do in the book world. And how did you know, even though it seemed like every, and maybe this goes back to what you're saying about being crazy, but how did you know when everybody was being so pessimistic about books that there was still this like intense passion for books that a lot of other people had? And like, what what do books really give you that the e-reader can't? Yeah, I mean, I think it really came from my own personal feelings about the printed book, my own history. And... When, and I was in the tech industry for seven years, mm-hmm. coming out of college, before I started Juniper Books as a hobby. And so and I had been kind of burnt out on tech, even though I was in that industry. And this was before the iPhone was ever invented. This was like 2001 was the end of my career in the tech business. And I was sick of looking at screens. I needed to like touch and hold you know, things. And I had this year in between the tech world and, and Juniper Books where I you know, learned to make pottery and played flamenco guitar and, you know, did very, like, immersive, single-focused, you know, tasks to kind of rewire my brain. (laughs) And I knew, and books was one of reading and just, like, writing. I had a screenwriting phase, too. And selling books were just one of the ways that I kind of, like, got back in touch with who I was and regained my attention span. And I knew 
you know, even when everybody else was saying, like, didn't you get the memo that ebooks are on the rise, printed books aren't going to exist? I knew that I wasn't alone. There were a lot of other people that felt the way I did. And a lot of people were kind of going along for the ride, like, oh, maybe this will be great. Books will be accessible everywhere. You can download them all. But I never thought it was a replacement. Mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of additive. Yes, you can go away on vacation with 40 books and figure out which one you like. But you still, when you get home and you have a comfortable reading chair, like, and you, you want to be surrounded by real books, like that, that feeling you can't recreate with ebooks. And the more I talked to my customers in the earlier days, the more that resonated with them and they said similar things in, in different words. So I felt like I was on to something. I knew it would be a niche, but I wasn't you know, trying to completely change the world of publishing or, or media or turn back the tide. So, People told me that the title of my podcast was too niche because it's only moms. Mm-hmm. I was like, if I could get all the moms, <laughs> I would feel fine about that. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like if you could get all the book lovers. Right, exactly. That would be yeah. a lot of people. You'd yeah. be okay. When I always like, I mean, nearly everybody has books in their home or they, they should. But so even if you get a tiny fraction of a tiny fraction of a percent, you know, of people that have books and love books, like that's a huge, huge market. Yeah. Like there are very few things that almost everybody has in their house, you know, either one to 5,000 of. And so, so I knew I was tapping into a big market, whether or not it was everybody or just a, a fraction of them. And I like how in your book, you talk not just about the books, but the interaction of your own story mixing with the stories of the authors and the books and how when you put them on your shelves, it becomes this like unique combination. I didn't quote that very well, but here, I'll, re- I'll, I'll read your words. They, they were better than mine. When we add books, any printed books, to our homes and lives and make space for them, something almost all chemical happens. All, all chemical. It's like alchemy. Uh, yeah, I thought it was like alchemy, but alchemical. I don't know. We combine the author and their story with who we are and our story. The combination of the author and their story plus us and our story is a new story and it's completely original. I love that. Thank you. Because it's like, you're so right. Well, if I could drop the mic now, I would just drop the mic. <laughs> you said it. You said my words better than I can say them. We don't even have to talk about it. I'll just tell you that you're right, and I'll move on <laughs> if you want. I think it's something that we do without thinking about it, right? So you, you go shopping for books, you're gifted books, and you keep a certain number of them. And then you move, you redecorate, you know, and you say, oh, this is like still part of, you know, it's still important to me. This one's not, or like I changed my hobbies and no longer need these books about Japanese gardens or whatever. You know, now I'm into Harley Davidson's, whatever it may be. And so I think that, like, there's something so unique about every book that's ever been written. Like, every author has spent years writing those books. And then those end up on your shelves. And like, just behind you, that represents like 100 years of work, which is amazing in I know, itself. It's amazing. Then there's like the story of how you got the books, every store you ever went to you know, or every person that ever gave it to you, every trip that you've taken where you've taken those books. So you start to like see how every piece of a bookshelf is completely unique. And it's not accidental. And the combination of how those books ended up on that shelf right behind you, and then how you arrange them, which ones you decide to put at eye level versus, you know, up high, or maybe face out the covers. So it's, I also describe it as like DNA. It's just completely unique what's on our shelves. And we bring as much to the shelves as the books bring to us. So I really do think it's like alchemy or magic. Like we're just creating something completely new that only exists right here. So neat. Yeah. I love that. After I read your book, I was like, I think I might need to go through this room and now take out all the books that (laughs) 
don't really fit or that like have traveled with me for years and I don't even know why I still have them, right? They're like some of these. And then I feel like people look and they're like, oh, she must like, I don't know, tales of investment bankers. Mm. It's something like I have no interest in looking at again ever and I bought for some article. So anyway, I think maybe after you leave, I'll <laughs> try to find time to call it's, it the shelf. it's fun to do and fun to refresh it every year. And like that's what For Love Books is all about. Like it's it's about looking at your bookshelf, bookshelves, you know, with new mindfulness and intention and refreshing it, and like just being like, does this tell part of our story, my story, or not? And you know, in contrast to something like Marie Kondo, you know, does it spark joy? Like, mm-hmm. give most of your books away. Like, I think there's there's a middle ground between like keeping every book you've ever had and giving every book away. There's a middle path that's like, does this mean something to me? And books are not like other objects; they they can have a lot more meaning in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason to keep them as a reflection of who you are and who you want to be. I love that. You have also really great stuff in the book about how to foster a love of reading for your kids, which people have written entire other books about, by the way. And you even had, which I just have to flag, and I guess you don't have it in your house anymore, but you put a magnetic strip. I'm, I'm making hand gestures that nobody can see. Horizontally and then intersected vertically magnetic. And then you put magnetic strips on your daughter's favorite books when she was a little girl. And she could magnetically put them up behind her bed. And I think that is the most clever thing. <laughs> I thought so too. I wanted to turn it into a product. So you should maybe have. someone listening yes. can email me and we can collaborate on it. I thought that was one yeah. of the, co- I mean, not that the whole book wasn't cool, but just like yeah. you obviously have all these continual stores of unique ideas and that I found to be Yeah. And it was super like, cool. it was born out of, you know, reading my daughter to bed every night. Her name's Jasmine. And, you know, every parent probably can relate to this. You're, like, super tired, and, you know, you pick up one book, and your kids are like, one more. And then you, like, toss that one on the floor, and you pick yeah. up another one, and then you have this, like, messy pile of books on the floor. So We, we have a step stool. I have a step <laughs> stool next to my son's okay. bed with all the books piling off, but yes. Yeah. So, so lots of books, no great way to organize them. And, and then also the covers are really super cool, like beautiful artwork, you know, on Eric Carl books or... Mm-hmm. Ten Little Ladybugs was one of her favorites. So so anyway, so we, you know, I glued the magnets to the back and then would wrap them in a rubber band and then stick them to this magnetic shelf. It's like a magnetic bar behind us and and down the side of the bed. So it was kind of a cool way to display the books during the day and a great way to just pick them up and put them back as we finish them. And then when she got bored of a book, we'd retire it and then put a magnet on a new book and stick it up on the shelf. So I love that. It was fun. Yeah. That's so cool. And there's some pictures of that in the book, like you said. Yes, which was great. better than I could describe them, for sure. (laughs) I just want to read this one quote. So a handful of the pages in the book are just beautiful one-page quotes from other famous authors or notable figures, one of which is, if you read the books, and this is by Haruki Murakami, I can't pronounce anything today, if you read the books that everyone else is reading, you can only think what everyone else is thinking, which I loved. I mean, I keep saying I love everything, but I really did, because... I feel like there's pressure sometimes to read all the bestsellers or what the literary world thinks is like the greatest thing ever. But often I don't like that. And then I feel bad. Right. I want to read the books I want to read. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's all this pressure, even like with the theater sometimes. Like everybody loves the show. Well, why don't I like it? There must be something wrong with me. But what you're saying, it's like you need people to be liking different things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, you take it from there. Well, and it's Murakami who really said it, so I can't take credit for him. But No, I know, um, but still. <laughs> but, I mean, so Elizabeth Lane, my co-author, and I on the book, like she curated a lot of the quotes, and then Gibb Smith did a really beautiful job laying it out, our publisher that published the book. And, but I think, you know, on the one hand, 
everyone's reaction to a book can be completely different, kind of like what we were talking about before mm-hmm. with, you know, something alchemical happening and your DNA and your reaction to the books. But at the same time, you know, books these days combined with mass media, you, you know, it's kind of like cable news or, you know, have you seen that new show on Netflix or whatever? Like people tend to move in packs and some, you know, if everybody tells you, you should like this book, then you think you like it, even if you don't like it. And I think books are one of those great things where you can really make up your own mind, first of all. And there's a book for everybody out there. There, I mean, there's unlimited books. If we just read every minute for the rest of our lives, we'd never be able to read, you know, a fraction of the books that are out there. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think if you don't like a book, put it down, go get a new one. You don't have to like a book just because someone told you you should like it or because it's a bestseller. And there's like a thousand different bestseller lists and awards and everything. So, there's, you know, I think... The same, you know, challenge with mass media telling you you should like something. The internet just kind of opens up the possibilities that, like, there's a lot of ways to figure out, oh, you know, customers who bought this also bought that. Or, you know, if you like mm-hmm. Kurt Vonnegut, you'll also like these authors. Like, and you'll, you'll just, there's so much to explore. And life is short, so there's a lot of good stuff to read out there. And I want to hear a little bit about the process of writing this book and figuring out what to include. I don't know if you're comfortable talking about your lymphoma. Mm-hmm. You put in the book that you had been sick, and so you had to rest, take it back a notch with your business, and you've invested that time to write this book. Whereas, I mean, you could have just like you know watched movies, and that would have been fine. But tell me what that whole process was like, and what it felt like to get this diagnosis, and how you like sort of made sense of life at that time. Yeah, so two years ago, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Just finished the two-year anniversary of my treatment ending. And fortunately, it was successful, so I'm cancer-free now. And, but it kind of came out of nowhere. And, you know, I had to get into treatment immediately. It was a very aggressive form of cancer, stage two. And I had to, you know, stay home a lot and go to chemotherapy a lot. And I'd always considered myself a writer before that, even though I'd never published anything. And so I had this time to reflect while I was, you know, still trying to run my business, but not really being in the office and having some extra time trying to rest and recover. I was like, you know, when I emerge from this, I really do want to publish books. I had like outlined six or seven of them at that point, some fiction, some nonfiction. And one of them that I'd outlined was a book about what I do. And I really had a lot of time to reflect on why do I do it? Like, I think it's meaningful, meaningful for the world. I think books, encouraging people to read, surround themselves with books, have more books in the world, is like a noble purpose. But was I really doing enough to inspire people to do that? And was Juniper Books maybe too limited to just the customers who had found us and you know had the means to hire us? Could I do something that was a little bit broader and really encourage people to look at all the books they own, even if they never bought a single thing from us or hired us to do their library or if they never remodeled their house, if they just you know reorganized the paperbacks they have on their shelf? Could I provide a book that just gave them more insight about how to do that meaningfully, inspired them, and just really kind of gave them permission to do what they want with their books and in the world that we live, with, live in, just to read and like slow down and that it was okay to do that. They didn't have to feel like they you know, had to be watching Netflix all day. So a few months after emerging from cancer, I was like struggling with my energy level and getting back to work full time, and I got an email from the publisher and they said, we, we want to do a book about home library design, and we think you're the perfect person to write it. 
And I wrote back and I was like, well, not only am I the perfect person to write it, but I already started writing it. So let's do it. And I didn't shop it around. I'd known them from selling their books before and they're in Utah. We're in Colorado. So we're like both the the outliers (laughs) from, you know, the book world in New York. And yeah, and it was a really good fit. Elizabeth Lane was the founder of Quarter Lane, Mm -hmm. really nice book subscription company. And she's the book buyer for business in Massachusetts. And so she and I asked, I knew I needed help. I knew she was a great editor and I needed help, you know, just staying on deadline and bounce ideas off of. And she's just, you know, another great book lover. So we worked together and it came together super quickly. That initial email, I think, was in February. We basically had the deal outlined by the spring and the book was done in October. And then here we are a year later and out on the shelves and available, you know, for purchase and been making a few stops on the book tour. And yeah, so it was, you know, a lot to go through to get to that point. But fortunately, like writing the book flowed very smoothly. And because I had that kind of wake up call that reminded me that I wanted to be a writer and to have a, a greater impact than just the business. It really is very fulfilling to have the book out there on the shelves now. And what about the other five or six books? <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm working on one of them right now, currently at the, the book proposal stage, trying to finish that up in the next couple of weeks. Non- it's nonfiction? Nonfiction, more of like a productivity, self-improvement book. Okay. So I kind of looked at a lot of you know, how am I able to get things done Mm -hmm. in this very noisy, multitasking-oriented world and, you know, sort of coalesced my personal philosophy into a book. And, you know, hopefully I'll I'll be back in the future to talk more about it. But it's I think it's a very, like, I mean, it is truly how I get things done. And it reading is the launching off point to, like, really regaining your attention span and your focus and being able to do one thing at a time in order to do everything in life better. I totally believe that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Yeah, I mean, definitely just keep writing. And I think, you know, the the marketplace has changed so much that, you know, there are a lot of opportunities for self-publishing that there weren't before. And um, there's a lot of variety in the marketplace in terms of genres that, you know, are always, you know, looking for more good books. You know, I think you have to, you have to get it done. You can't just talk about it. And I think, you know, even though I'm in the book world and, close to all the publishers and a lot of writers and have a lot of inspiration around me. Like it took me 18 years to really sit down and and finish a book, but I never gave up on the dream and it took some other things to inspire me to, to finish a book. So I'd say, don't give up, just keep writing and, and share your writing too. I think I'm also like have a tendency to be a little protective, but every time I've, you know, shared my writing with other people, it definitely makes it stronger to get some feedback. Excellent. Thank you, Thatcher. Yeah, thanks, thanks for Sydney. sharing. Your pleasure. book is beautiful, not just to read, but also to look at. So thanks for putting that out there in the world. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's an honor to be in your library. Oh, thanks. <laughs> You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks so much. Today's episode has been sponsored by Poets and Writers. Visit pw.org to get inspired, connect with other writers, and explore a treasure trove of information about writing contests, literary agents, and more. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 